This is the Forbes interview on Podcast One. And I'm your host, Steve Bertoni. On this show, I do deep dive interviews with billionaires, entrepreneurs, and influencers. These are the faces you see on the cover of Forbes. And if they aren't on the cover, they easily could be. Welcome to the show. Today, I'm excited to have Vivek Ramaswamy, who, when he's not on the tennis courts, um, runs a biotech empire, including two publicly traded uh, companies, Royvant and Exovant, and a whole pipeline of very cool, promising drugs. So, Vivek, thank you for uh, coming in today. Absolutely. Thank you. My pleasure. Or actually, we're coming to you. So thank you for letting us in today. No, it's it, it, welcome. Welcome to our offices. So what is exciting right now? I mean, you uh, tell me a little bit about your business and what is kind of motivating you guys right now. So I started this company several years ago with the vision of making this expensive and time-consuming drug development process a little bit, or even hopefully a lot, more cost-effective and a lot more time-efficient. It's a $2 billion average number on the average cost of delivering a new drug to market. It takes over 10 years on average, and there's an incredibly high failure rate. And in my years, having observed the biotech industry, both as an investor and, and an outsider who's taken an interest in the drugs that do get developed and the outstanding innovation that, that has occurred in fields like cancer and other areas where biotech has made a difference, you know, I felt that there was an opportunity to take those lessons and apply them to building a company that found a faster way to innovate and even a more capital efficient way to innovate. So, that, so that's where we started a few years mm-hmm. ago. But you know, today we find ourselves on the eve of the first fruits of that strategy now coming to the final stages of phase three clinical trials, for example, potential drug approvals to follow if we're successful. And, and that's really what the next 12 months hold in store for us. We talk about innovation and kind of really speeding up the process. I think the whole new mantra of Silicon Valley, and I think it was Mark Zuckerberg's um, phrase, is to you know, you know, move fast and break things. But you're in biotech; you're making drugs. If you break things, people could die. So how do you speed up this process that is obviously very, um, it's very important to people's lives. It can be very dangerous. It can be very helpful. Um, It's also highly regulated. How do you speed up that process? So, so I think you you hit on an important point, and I think in contrast to the way that. Uh, Silicon Valley tech firms might seek to outright disrupt or break things, as uh, you know, it sounds like Mark put it. I would I would say that innovation in the way of developing drugs needs to be incremental in nature. It needs to go step by step because I think the stakes for what we do are perhaps more significant than just developing the next application on a mobile device. This is really the kind of work that involves people putting their uh, you know, they're in some sense lives on the line every day in clinical trials that firms like us conduct in order to determine whether drugs work or not. This is a serious business and effectively impacting human health for often deadly diseases. It's something that we need to take very seriously while still finding a way to make that process more efficient than it historically has been. And so so our view is that going step by step, and I can I can talk more about it later on, but in, let, let's start with the specifics of a given disease area. Why is it that the industry hasn't succeeded historically? Why is it the industry has taken so long to deliver major advances in areas like Alzheimer's disease or major women's health conditions like uterine fibroids or endometriosis, areas where we take a great interest? And then really just rather than start with the grand the grand vision to instead start on the ground with the specifics about how can we do that clinical trial more effectively how can we develop that drug more cost efficiently and i think what royvent represents today is the sum total of all of those on the ground innovations that that add up to hopefully in the future a more efficient way of developing drugs across the board and you have royvent you have very you have very unique strategy and a unique company in the sense that you acquire drugs and compounds that other big companies, the Merck's Pfizer's and Shering Plows, have kind of left on the shelf. Can you explain to me how that, how that works and how you kind of thought of this idea? Yeah, sure. And it's actually a little bit broader than that. So, so I'll take just a minute to tell you about the, the primary business strategy today. So the overall mission is reducing time and cost of drug development. But I believe one of the lowest hanging fruits for how we can best do that is, is our business strategy of solving what I like to call the R&D traffic jam problem. There is a major industry-wide traffic jam of promising R&D stage drug candidates. So these are drugs that are in the pipeline in phase one, two, or phase three mm-hmm. development, for example, that don't get developed or at least don't get the optimal level of resources for development for reasons that have little to do with science, little to do with human data, and much more to do with 
corporate strategy okay. that a given disease area is in vogue or not. And, and as a consequence, a lot of those drugs get stuck in, in this traffic jam. And what we do ultimately is build a superhighway for those drugs by, by, as you put it, in licensing or acquiring those drugs. So there's like there's fashion, the there's, there's fashion and pharmaceuticals. There's what's in and what's out. They, they follow the trends. There is. So immune oncology is in right now. Uh, you know, there's a couple of other, you know, hot disease so areas. Cancer, cancer is hot right now? Cancer has been hot uh, for, for a little while, and I think that's great. And, and, and I want to come back to this a little later. That, I believe, is a direct response to the support we've seen from the public, from government stakeholders, from payers, from – FDA, a lot of the efforts that they've undertaken to give industry incentives to develop drugs in those areas, over the last 10 years, the industry has responded in a big way. And cancer, and particularly immuno-oncology, the use of the immune system to fight cancer from within the body itself, this is a hot area where every company that's committed to that area is all in. Mm -hmm. But with a finite pool of resources, there's a lot of other areas where the pendulum has swung the other way. And especially as many off many major patented drugs are coming off patent and there's a shrinking R&D budget at many of these companies, as you divert resources to areas like oncology or cancer research, that leaves a whole swath of other important areas that, that go unaddressed. And so part of our mission is to really pick up that slack and importantly provide a vehicle for those drugs to get to the finish line and even get to the finish line more efficiently than they might have in the prior owner's hands. What, uh, what diseases are you, are you tackling or which, which drugs are you kind of getting over the finish line, as you said? Sure. So, I mean, we've got major clinical trials at all a phase of development in a number of areas. So the most prominent and best known is, is the Alzheimer's program and more broadly the dementia programs mm-hmm. ongoing at Axivant. So Axivant's a company today that has multiple phase two and phase three and some phase one clinical trials going on across Alzheimer's disease and also Lewy body dementia patients. Mm-hmm. Lewy body dementia is not all well known, but that was Robin Williams' diagnosis yes, yeah. on, on autopsy, for example. Uh, then at my event, we're focused on women's health. So women's health is an area that, for reasons that continue to puzzle me, has really failed to see any major innovative advances outside of, say, breast cancer. So fields like endometriosis and uterine fibroids, we have a couple of phase three studies either underway or soon to start in those areas. We have a phase three program in prostate cancer starting later this year. And then we also have programs in, in rare diseases. So these are diseases that may be too rare, generally pediatric conditions affecting kids, mm-hmm. sometimes fatal, wow. that you know have, have affect too many people to be on the radar of the large pharma companies that we've taken a real interest at a business called Enzivant. And then we have a dermatology business and, and for reasons I can bore you with another time, I think there is a real gap in innovation in the medical dermatology field. In contrast to aesthetics or, or focuses of- Yeah, the acne, acne yeah. stuff. I mean, th- th- there's a whole aesthetics business that, that, that's a different story, but medical dermatology, I think, has been one of these gaps that has, that has been left by the innovative pharma industry that we want to fill as well. One thing you mentioned is you feel that women's health has been neglected for years, mm-hmm. which is, I mean, it's, it seems odd, but it might make sense. Why is that? Is that because- is the pharmaceutical company until recently been very male dominated? Because obviously it's half the population. There's a ton of women doctors in healthcare, and also everyone just has relationships with everybody. It's also like, more than half the population. More than half, yeah, exactly. So why has that been neglected? It seems both like as a passion and also as a, as a money maker, like a great business. Yeah, so it, it's a good it's a good question. Historically, I think it has to do with some cultural reasons. And historically, women's health has not been one of the areas where pharmaceutical researchers have received great attention or pride of authorship for delivering new innovation. And if I was Rip Van Winkle 20 years ago and went to sleep and woke up today, it's the same mechanism of action that was in the early 90s or late 80s that effectively have been refurbished in some way for the last couple of decades where there has been not a single major advance outside of areas like breast cancer in areas like the two diseases I mentioned, endometriosis, uterine fibroids. Now, now why is that is your question. I think it's complicated. You know, does it does it have something to do? Does it bear some relationship to the fact that the CEOs and heads of R and D at nearly every major pharmaceutical company today is is male? Uh, perhaps I I think you could certainly talk to a lot of people, including even the CEO of my event, our our company that's focused on women's health, Lynn Seeley, who would argue that the answer is probably yes. Yeah. And, and I, I do think that there's tremendous room for increased diversity of every kind in the leadership of biotech and pharmaceutical companies. And, you know, I think that, uh, you know, Lynn and the, and the perspective that she brings and the passion she brings to running my event as a leader in women's health is just one example of that, 
that emblem of Royvin's approach to diverse leadership and even the kinds of drug development that we do is actually a consequence of the diversity of leadership that we bring in place. And, and I'm a big supporter of, of seeing more female leadership in our industry. And you mentioned before the, the Rip Van Winkle, if you went to sleep for 20 years, would be not much progress. I guess the same can be said for Alzheimer's, which is just is affecting so many people and families. It affects the economy, as you, you, were gonna, you mentioned to me before. What is your focus on Alzheimer's and why is it, why is it important to you? Um, and you know, what does it mean for our nation, for our, our entire you know, the globe? Yeah, so, so this is an issue that I'm personally quite passionate about. So I'm the CEO of Royven, the umbrella organization that I founded several years ago. But I made a unique decision to also serve as the CEO of Axivant, which is Royven's subsidiary focused on the treatment of dementia. The other companies in our family, like Myavant or Enzavant, each have their own management teams and CEOs. But in Axivant's case, it was, it was very personal to me for a couple of reasons. I happen to think that it is the major healthcare threat to our economy, and in some sense, our actual security as a country and even the Western developed world over the next 20 years. I I view it as a ticking time bomb as you have a whole generation of baby boomers that are going to age, many of them progressing to get Alzheimer's disease, disproportionately, by the way, affecting women and minorities. Two-thirds of people with Alzheimer's disease today are women, and it does disproportionately affect minority communities, especially the African-American community. You know why that is? So, uh, so it's not elucidated for – short answer is not elucidated exactly why. I mean women do tend to live longer than men, so that life expectancy partially explains the, the greater prevalence of the disease among women. But it also affects women disproportionately in that the caregiver time – so there's about 5 million people in the United States mm-hmm. with Alzheimer's disease, but 15 million more caregivers, almost oh yeah, I'd say a disproportionate amount of them are women and – a lot of those caregivers have to leave their jobs, and the amount of work hours lost is not something that we've calculated, but I believe would be a substantial, uncalculated economic burden that Alzheimer's disease presents, which doesn't even show up in the 200-some-odd billion-dollar figures that you see for what it costs on an annual basis you know, today. So it's not only just the it, – it is, it is levels of circles, not just the, the people that have these diseases, but also it expands out and affects – families and caregivers and just the whole Absolutely. The whole so, so, I mean, there's just, if you look at the raw numbers and you're, you take the emotion out of it, it's a national economic threat and it is an, an issue that disproportionately affects minorities. But putting that issue to one side, it, it, it in broad proportion affects all of us. But, but on a personal level, it's also a, a dehumanizing condition in a lot of ways. It goes to the core of what we consider to be someone's identity, their ability to think, their ability to function as an agent. I actually grew up the child of a geriatric psychiatrist. I actually had taken some interest in the relationship mm-hmm. between music and the treatment of Alzheimer's disease, or at least the management of Alzheimer's disease patients from a young age. I've played piano, grew up playing the piano in nursing homes, uh, as my mother actually cared for patients with mm-hmm. Alzheimer's disease. So it's been a passion of mine from a very young age. But it's a disappointment, I think a great disappointment as an observer and now a leader in the biotech industry that for all of the amazing things the drug industry has done in the last couple of decades, we in the last 10 plus years have not made a single major advance, not a single new chemical entity approved for the treatment of Alzheimer's disease. And what what disappoints me even more is when I look at where the research cuts are being made, they're disproportionately in areas like neuroscience's research. As failure after failure, you you, you would think in, in... Certain times you might imagine that, well, that, that throws the gambit to take an even greater risk and, and double down on your research to be able to make that next advance. But the reality of how things work for most public, you know, near-term driven biopharmaceutical companies is we may as well invest in areas like cancer, like in infectious diseases or other areas where we have higher chances of success. And, and a lot of that neurodegenerative research has actually gone by the wayside. Mm. So, so an organization like ours, this is where I really take a lot of personal pride and a lot of personal motivation to be able to make a difference in areas that may fall through the cracks in the broader capital allocation in R&D across the industry. So what do we need to do to, for, to really tackle Alzheimer's? I mean, you mentioned before you know, cancer and immunotherapy, and I know, um, you know Sean Parker, the you know, billionaire philanthropist, is spent a ton of money kind of trying to, on, on cancer, uniting Absolutely. all these people together. Joe getting Biden, sharing. for example, yeah. has, I mean, the, the, the level of voice of investment, of attention mm-hmm. that has gone into cancer research and immuno-oncology research in particular has been, you know, I think is laudable. I, I'm mm-hmm. in favor of it yes. uh, to take nothing away from that. But, but I actually think there's an interesting point there. 
it is not a coincidence. So th- I'm going to share with you my point of view, yeah. and, and others may disagree. But my point of view is that it is not a coincidence that the very areas where you have seen the greatest government support and receptiveness for both basic research as well as accelerated paths to get drugs to market, the greatest willingness to reward innovation, the greatest public support from both people in the political realm as well as in the philanthropic realm, also has correlated with some of the greatest private investments that have been made in oncology research, which in turn has correlated with the area where we've seen some of the major breakthroughs in terms of even cures now being delivered for diseases that were untreatable Mm -hmm. as recently as 10 or 15 years ago. To me, those set of facts, those are not uncorrelated. That's not a coincidence. In fact, I think there's a deep causal link between the priorities and the agendas that our government sets, that our political leaders set, that our philanthropists then follow, that private investment then follows. And of course, the totality of those efforts will result, I believe, in the capacity of human potential and and brilliant researchers delivering major breakthroughs. We've seen it happen. I think there's a tremendous room for that type of groundswell of of support for what I see as an even bigger social and economic threat in the next 10 years. You mean like an Alzheimer's moonshot? I think so. I think it's a good idea, you know, and I think that that's something that, you know, look, it's it's a time. There's there's a lot that's changing right now. I mean, there's not just in the drug development world, but in the world generally. And if there's some good that can come out of that, we can also take a step back and see what are some social problems that we can solve. You know, I think Barack Obama did come out and say that he wanted Alzheimer's disease cured by 2025. Mm-hmm. I thought that was uh, bold when when asserted, and I'm I'm disappointed to report that that there's. No chance that that's going to happen yeah. based on any evidence we have that we're going to have gotten to that goal by 2025 or anything resembling it. But if we're to take that recognition of the problem and use a lot of the, a lot of the new energy around identifying what are the problems that are going to threaten, especially countries like the United States over the next 20 years, Alzheimer's disease has got to be at the top of the list. I mean, we have some major studies reading out. I can't promise you that they're definitively going to work. I feel good about some of them. But you know, whether it's us, whether it's other companies in the field, we would love more friends in the field actually pursuing that mission. And it's an area where I believe more competition is a good thing. And a rising tide can actually help lift all boats. And and I, I do think that there is substantial room for even policymakers and government stakeholders and for the U.S. federal government in particular to take some leadership in, in paving the way. Yeah, you mentioned, you know, both Obama and, and Joe Biden targeting diseases, cancer and Alzheimer's. Uh, in the first two weeks, President Trump has been targeting biotech companies and practices. Is there a way to kind of would you how would you try to get this administration to maybe tackle this Alzheimer's, or you think they're going to start creating medical goals for the country to maybe unite everybody and you know find I don't know. You know, you, you did mention the the president. He is uh, you know look I, as as far as we know, it's it's important to the family. I mean. Fred Trump, Donald Trump's father, died with Alzheimer's disease, and he's not unique in that regard. Mm. You, you'd be hard-pressed to find I – mean, you could walk around this office, especially this office, actually, and find the majority of people here are one degree separated from somebody who was touched by Alzheimer's disease. So whether it's the president or our policymakers or ordinary people here working every day to advance that research agenda, you don't have to look very far to find people who have had their lives touched in an often poignant way by this disease. Uh, One of the great problems in uh, clinical trial involving elderly people, say in the treatment of Alzheimer's disease Mm -hmm. or in dementia, is getting people from their home to the clinical trial site. Turns out there's a major obstacle to get them to agree to participate in a clinical study. And the chance of failure in a clinical study is higher when people don't show up for their actual visits, because that messes up the data analysis later on. Well, one of the simple problems that, that we deployed here, and this was entirely engineered and managed by somebody who came from outside the pharma industry was to take a look at what types of applications are available to solve that problem today in a way that weren't available in 1995. So we ultimately entered a partnership with Lyft, enabled these individual sites, these hospitals or clinical centers to quarterback the transportation in a seamless way from home to site and back in a way that made life a lot easier for the patient, in a way that reduced the variability of transportation contributing as a factor to why patients may not show up. You're getting rid of a lot of friction. And most importantly, to tell, send a message to both the patients and those physicians that we're listening to you. We hear your problems, and we're the kind of company that ultimately 
takes that into account by using tools that are available today that weren't available 20 years ago to make that process more efficient, mm-hmm. to make that process more cost effective, and to make that process a lot faster than it would have been. But I think that we need to harness a level of boldness to take on a challenge that you know, pretty soon we're not going to be able to hide from. And, and I personally see it as an opportunity for right now to even present a unifying issue. There's a lot of broad uh, division on a whole range of political topics, and you know it's not a lot of them I don't take a great personal interest in, mm-hmm. but but I do observe a time of a lot of fractures among people who have different points of view on important you know policy related topics. But I I would think you would be hard pressed to find a, a single person who was educated about this issue that didn't say it shouldn't be a top priority for our country and and even the Western world more broadly. And, and I think that no moment, no time better than the present to not only seize an issue and tackle head on a problem that could affect our country you know, over the next 20 years, but also to seize it in a way that could unify us behind a common cause mm-hmm. that undoubtedly is worth advancing. And that causes ultimately delivering major innovation as fast as we can to patients with Alzheimer's disease and other forms of dementia. We're going to take a quick commercial break. We'll be right back. Hey, it's Jordan Harbinger. For the last 10 years, I've successfully helped people build their self-confidence with my Art of Charm podcast. And now, along with Art of Charm, I'm hosting a new show. It's Podcast One's latest program, The Forbes List. On the show, we talk to the Forbes editors that curate their famous and respected lists, like self-made richest people, billionaires, and highest-paid athletes. We'll get behind-the-scenes insight and information that doesn't make the print cut. So please subscribe on iTunes to the Forbes list, and don't forget to rate us, review, and share. It's the semi-annual sale at Mattress Firm. For a limited time, get huge savings of up to $500 on our top-rated mattresses. We have more than 15 beds with over four-star ratings on sale store-wide. Like our fan-favorite Serta Memory Foam Queen mattress, now just $397. You won't find this deal anywhere else. But hurry in, this sale ends Tuesday. Your budget stretches further at Mattress Firm. Restrictions apply. Valid at participating locations only. For offer details, visit mattressfirm.com slash sale. And I want to talk to you a little bit about you as an entrepreneur and as a founder. I mean, people listening to the show would probably assume rightfully that you are a, a 30-year-old veteran of the uh, pharmaceutical mm-hmm. biotech industry, but you're not. How, how old are you? I'm 31. Oh, I had to think about that. Over the hill. Yeah. So you're 31 years old, and you know, most of your peer group, like you said, it's Silicon Valley. I mean, a lot of founders are getting – and nothing wrong with this, but they're doing you know, apps or social mm-hmm. stuff. Or How did you get into this kind of – big thorny industry of biotech like what, what what first of all what motivated you but what were the steps you took to get here i mean you don't hear many 31 year olds that have two publicly traded companies let alone in biotech it's really it's it's very rare i want to hear how you got here yeah sure so i mean i've i've always been connected to uh, the biosciences life sciences from from a younger age I studied molecular biology at Harvard College. I thought I was going to become a uh, some type of scientist. We were in class together. You don't remember? That's right. Oh, that was you. Oh, okay. Got it. All right. I'm glad we sorted that out. (laughs) I was in a lot of bio classes, and uh, and and I thought, look, I want. I was thinking about an MD path or MD PhD path. I actually worked in the in the lab of of Doug Melton. He's one of the leading embryonic stem cell research scientists at the time. Certainly was a pioneer in the area. And uh, I'm sure if you talk to him, he would tell you that I was not the most adept student in the laboratory, certainly not with my hands. Okay, not a, and, not a lab guy, right? Yeah, it, it turned out it wasn't a lab guy, but I was so fascinated by the questions that we were asking. And, and as a side note, he ended up becoming my thesis advisor on a topic in bioethics, the creation of human-animal chimeras. So these are, these, are, these are sort of early stage cell combinations derived both from humans and from animals. And I investigated some of the ethical questions therein, wow. uh, in part because I found it really interesting That's very, it's very sci-fi. It, it is. Yeah. Uh, it, it was certainly at the time. It's become a more mainstream topic since then. Wow. But uh, but it was evidence of both my interest in some bioethical questions as well as how bad I was at actually doing experiments in the lab. So some combination of the two led to uh, you know my interesting work. Are there any, as, hi- are as there an any undergrad. hybrids like floating around the office? If I open up the wrong door, I'm you know be some uh, sort of. You know, those are one of the trade secrets. So, okay. so uh, I'll have to I'll have to keep that close to the vest. Uh, but we won't let you wander around the the third floor because right. that's really where the, okay, uh, that's the the hybrid dragon. That's where the guys is. have the tasers. Yes, exactly. Okay, yeah, very good. <laughs> so uh, we'll keep you up here. Right. But uh, but anyway, that that was that was where I started and, and took a great interest in in the power of basic research and the advances that could make that ultimately could get translated to you know real breakthroughs that could help millions of people. One of the things I found, apart from my uh, poor 
manual skill set as a, as a lab rat was also the fact that the, the time horizons associated with making a given impact mm-hmm. were much longer than my, uh, you know, level of personal patience. Now, I actually admire the people who do go into that sort of research-based line of work, but I wanted to see whether, uh, from a personal standpoint, I could derive fulfillment from finding a different and even even uh, more concentrated way of focusing on on the delivery of major medical advances and drug development in mm-hmm. particular, because that was my passion. So I went into biotech investing, and I focused, you know, near exclusively for you know, six, seven years on the biotech investment process. I uh, joined a company that was focused on investing in a number of areas, but I focused my attention on the development of drugs and investing in companies that were delivering major innovative breakthroughs. I was very close as an investor to the revolution we've seen in hepatitis C, drug development now, a widely cured disease. Was that a hedge fund? That was, that was a hedge fund, yeah, exactly, here in, here in New York. Uh, and I had joined there straight out of college, and mm-hmm. by the time uh, I left, it was, it was one of the major strategies of the firm. When you make a bet on these, as a, as a hedge fund investor, when you make a bet on a company or on a, a drug, how do you do it? Do you, is it like a giant research project? Do you travel around? Like, how do you decide whether this is good or not, whether it's a promising investment or not? So I told you about my senior thesis in the lab of, of Doug Melton, a stem yeah. cell scientist before. But, but in some ways, the development of an investment thesis in biotech is not terribly different than my experience in writing an academic thesis in a very different setting. It, it really involves a combination of really diving deep into the scientific knit and grit of a particular area where you're focused. Uh, I certainly was very close to the development of, of antiviral drugs across therapeutic areas, but especially in hepatitis C, which I okay. mentioned earlier, focused a lot on some rare diseases that were under the radar, again, of some investors and even the pharma industry for a while. But, but the key as an investor that's different than as just a, a basic uh, scientist investigating some of the same questions is that it's you only get rewarded where you find an area where your unique view is distinguished from the view that everyone else takes on that same field. So you have to be a contrarian. That's right. Exactly. And I consider myself a contrarian. It's one of our uh, core business principles of our mm-hmm. firm is that everyone here has to approach their work with a contrarian spirit. And I think that that's what it takes to be a systematically successful investor. So how'd you go from investor to founder? So, so look, I mean, I think starting a career in basic research, you focus – head deep in one area, and you, you may become an expert in that area. And the same if you even work at a biotech company at a generally early stage of your career. But as an investor, I was really looking at often hundreds of these companies per year and got a high throughput experience in looking at, in, in identifying patterns, identifying you know, the kinds of things that formed the foundation for successful companies, the kinds of things that formed the foundation for companies that failed. Mm-hmm. And as an outside observer, I really, at that point, that was the first time I gained visibility into, into this traffic jam problem, that there were companies that would be looking for investment that had potentially multiple drugs that looked promising but weren't part of their core corporate strategy that made that, from my standpoint as an investor, uninvestable. I could invest in the projects that they, as entrepreneurs, were putting their energy into. And you see uh, on, at large scale in the large pharma companies, the same thing. And there was really no vehicle for unlocking the potential of those other promising drugs that, that went by the wayside. So it seems like you had to be kind of like right twice. You had to be right on the drug, and then it had to be right guessing that the company would follow through and actually market it. Just to be clear, you'd have companies that have their corporate focus, and, and you could make you know, a bet on whether or not the specific drugs that they were advancing were going to succeed or not. Mm-hmm. What I'm talking about is – the, the laboratories that discovered those drugs also discovered a number of other promising drugs that in many instances they just weren't developing because it wasn't part of their corporate mm-hmm. focus. Now, there's a history of, of biotech entrepreneurs who have in a one-off way taken advantage of that problem. So you may have a cancer expert who notices a big pharma company that has let a cancer drug go by the wayside that takes over rights to that drug and forms a cancer company around it. Or you might have a company for, for a lung disease that does the same thing. But I noticed that there was, there was really nobody who had systematically approached the business with solving this problem across the industry in a, where, in a way that transcended a given disease area. And, and I thought for a while, I found myself scratching my head and saying for a long time that, gee, somebody should, should solve that problem. And, you know, I said that long enough that I figured that somebody may as well be me. And if, uh, you know, if no one else was going to do it, it was time to 
you know, I had reached it, it aligned with the time where I had reached what I felt was the flattening part of my learning curve as an outside mm-hmm. investor. Uh, I had always uh, aspired to return to life as an entrepreneur, and that aligned with a time where I thought there was a major problem to solve, and the combination of those factors led to the founding of the company. I always love this. I try to pitch this in my head. Like, so you quit your very lucrative hedge fund job. And then you want to start a company. So what do you do the first two months of, of your new company? Is it you in your apartment with a laptop? Do you, how do you like, start the formation of going from an investor to like, I'm going to start a biotech company? I wish I had actually taken some time to step back and relish and enjoy the process because uh, it seems a lot more, uh, you know, it seems like a fun story in retrospect. But at the time, I was just focused directly on, on the substance of what we wanted to accomplish. There was two or three drugs that I thought were particularly promising that needed to be you know, ultimately revived, needed to be revived quickly. It was going to be a long process to do the kinds of deals that enabled those to get off the ground. So I was exclusively focused uh, in a way that didn't really relish or soak up some of the atmospheric did aspects. Raise, did you raise money? Or did you do, is it all your bootstrap yourself? There's a little bit of a catch-22 to starting this business, okay, okay? this business model. The catch-22 is, is as follows. If you're a pharma company, you don't particularly care to part with your drug to somebody who doesn't have the resources, and this is an expensive business. Yes. It takes a lot of money to develop a new drug, a lot of risk. So if you don't have that capital, they don't have any incentive to – part with that drug because some of their reward comes on the back end if the drug succeeds. And by the way, even the scientific motivation or the medical, a lot of times it's a humanitarian motivation for these companies to say that I'm a scientist, I took pride in that, and I'm happy if somebody else works on it. But I I don't have that same level of enthusiasm if I don't think that that party has the resources. Yeah, you don't want to give your kid to a stranger. That's right. Who's going to really drop the ball? On the other hand, investors, predictably, don't care to invest in a biotech company that doesn't have a pipeline or any drug assets. And therein lies this catch-22. So one of the important parts of enabling this business to get off the ground was starting with a substantial capital base. And uh, and, and, we, and indeed, I did that in starting the firm. So we started with just under $100 million that really gave our pharmaceutical partners the level of confidence mm-hmm. that we actually had the resources and also importantly the people. So there was there was a lot of experienced drug developers on the team, even starting from you know very early days of the company. Where'd the money come from? So uh, you know I was fortunate to be backed by my former employer. Uh, they had the advantage of getting to know me for a uh, number of years, mm-hmm. and uh, I guess they didn't uh, think it was going to be a total disaster. So uh, they 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 always, always write you off as a loss too. So that's good. Well, you know, I, I I'm not sure that would have gone over as as well if yeah. that was their business plan. But uh, but anyhow, I was I was fortunate to have their backing. I had also developed a relationship with an interesting interesting company. It's a company in it, called Dexel Pharma. It's okay. in Israel. It's I, I think the largest uh, second largest. You know, drug company in Israel next to Teva, but it's it's uh, privately held, and uh, they do a lot of interesting work. That they view the pharmaceutical industry from a different vantage point. They're largely a, a, a generics company, at least historically, okay. and had seen a lot of the same issues that I had seen in pharma R and D. Again, it it's, doesn't take uh, rocket science and a lot a lot of time observing the industry to observe this traffic jam mm-hmm. issue. But uh, but they weren't set up to do innovative drug development either, no more than a hedge fund was, and. You know, those two backers, in addition to myself and some of my uh, close friends, gave rise to the initial backing of the company. And that was enough certainly to get off the ground and pursue the first couple of drugs that we were going to add to our pipeline. And when you pursue drugs, what do you look for? I mean, you're going to acquire a drug and bring it into the company. Are there certain red flags that you want to see um, happen before you, you identify them and kind of pull the trigger? Yes. So, so the, I mean, the red flags are the ones that rule them out. And, and we, right, the green, we, we the green, look the for green, them. The green flags. Yeah, yeah just technical term here. Uh, yes. The red flags versus the green flags. So, so uh, the short answer is yes, of course. And, and apart from the basic scientific due diligence that any thoughtful pharmaceutical company would exercise before bringing in a drug, which, which we do here too, we make sure that the teams that are going to be responsible for working on the drug are an important part of that due diligence. I'm a big believer in ownership and accountability, mm-hmm. and I don't believe in a process where where a business development team in a vacuum makes a determination that a drug is worth developing, but the people who are later responsible for developing it don't have a stake in the selection of that drug. So, so this goes way be, this goes well beyond chemistry. This is human human passion and talent and absolutely the people who are ultimately here are going to be responsible for doing the clinical trials shouldn't be in a position to 
you know, years from now say, oh, well, I never wanted to develop that drug anyway. Mm -hmm. To the contrary, you're a co-author in the selection of that drug candidate. And they also have a lot of technical expertise looking at the results of animal experiments, past human clinical trials, chemistry and manufacturing issues. So we study all of that and kick the tires in careful detail. But, But one of the overarching themes for me is before I sign off on giving my backing to ultimately consummate any deal, one of the things I need to see is that there was a scientist or a group of scientists who previously worked on that drug at that prior company and were at least as excited about our development plan for it as we are. Mm-hmm. And, and to me, that really points out – that really also smokes out the nature of the problem. The problem here is not one of individual scientists or individual researchers believing that a drug isn't worth developing and belongs in the trash can and then we disagree with them and develop a different point of view. I think that would be an uphill battle. Maybe you'd find a diamond in the rough, but it'd be a a large rough and a rare diamond. But what we're focused on is actually breathing new resources and life into a drug that had a scientific champion or a group of scientific champions behind it that hit a dead end for reasons that generally had nothing to do with underlying science and more to do with whether the corporate strategy of their firm had enough resources or enough focus in a given disease area to accommodate a further budget for their for their project. So to me, that's one of the one of the factors that ties together all of the deals that we have done is really the the belief and and you know, I, I think evidence that that somebody who knew this drug even better than we possibly could in the often many months that we spend studying it had the same level of passion for our plan to to revive and continue its development. And you've tried to revive you're in the process right now of reviving 12, 12, comp, 12 drugs? Yeah, uh, there, there should be some major, uh, I hope, some major additions to the pipeline even in the coming months. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's, let's just say, at least 12 drugs in our pipeline that we've publicly What's, disclosed. Which are a few close to maybe getting on the trial or close to coming onto the market? What are, have you, any uh, clear winners yet? So, so just to be crystal clear, all of the drugs are still in the human clinical trial process. Mm-hmm. None of them are approved for, for use and need to go through the FDA process to get there. So phase three trials are the final stage of the drug development process before filing for an FDA approval. Mm -hmm. So one of the areas where we're going to be filing, if successful in clinical trials for FDA approval, uh, potentially in the next next year, is going to be for our drug in the treatment of Alzheimer's disease. Mm -hmm. Now, there is a major phase three clinical trial to read out. That's going to be in the third quarter of this year, as I've said publicly before. And if that's successful, that would form the basis for one of our first major filings for approval in the Royvin family. We also have a therapy that came out of partnership with Duke University. Mm-hmm. This is the one I was alluding to earlier. Treats a condition that affects a very small number of children, but it's basically a deadly condition. And we have a what we believe could be a potentially transformative, even mm-hmm. life-saving therapy for, for these kids. What's a condition? It's, it's a condition called complete de George syndrome. These kids are basically, among other things, born without a thymus. And there's a novel biologic therapy. What's that, thymus? Uh, uh, we, we, uh, I was falling asleep in your Harvard class. Yeah, exactly. We can go into much. Let's just say governs the, the immune system okay. in important yeah. ways. And suffice it to say that, again, this is not yet approved for, for use, mm. but it did come out of some groundbreaking research out of Duke University where we have a separate collaboration. And that's a drug where we've said we may be filing for approval next year mm-hmm. if, the, if we think that the data continues to support that. Yeah. And, then, and then in my event, for example, we also have recently announced the start of a phase three study in uterine fibroids. So these are some of the drugs that are in late stages, sort of in that final phase three stage mm-hmm. of development. We have a number of other drugs that are in phase two as well in the scheme of the whole drug development process, relatively late stage. But, uh, but that's the flavor of how we, how we like to approach the building of our pipeline is drugs that have generally proven themselves in some way in earlier stage clinical trials, in animal work, even before they entered clinical trials. And, and that's where our organization, I believe, excels, is not in the basic discovery of new molecules in mm-hmm. the lab. Yeah where I actually think there's a lot of outstanding work that goes on both within the industry and beyond the industry. But, but in some sense, there's so much outstanding work that goes on there and not enough infrastructure to actually uh, develop those drugs through human clinical trials that that's the main gap that we're filling as an organization. And you have two publicly, there's two publicly traded companies. 
Yeah, and, and, and just to be clear, so, yes, so two publicly traded companies are are part of the, the Royvent organization yes. or the Royvent family of companies. So those are Axavant and Myavant. Yeah. So they're on the, they're trading on the market, but you don't have any drugs on the market yet. Not yet. Not yet. And so how does that work? Because I mean, I know the stock prices have always in, in biotech in general are always whipping around super volatile. How do you kind of how do you manage the company and the trials and the stock price, which is so live or die on basically how these drugs turn out? So to me, the easiest way to think about, uh, you know, be it a public company or a private company, but but the gaining of capital to back valuable projects is ultimately let it be driven by the fundamentals. The fundamentals in drug development are what's clinical data? What do the clinical data say? What do the scientific data say? What are the timelines and the costs associated with a particular project that needs to get to approval? You know, investors can form a view on what the chance of success is on their analysis of those data sets. And, and there's a commercial potential for every drug. And that really, in my experience, both as an investor and also observing the way that mm-hmm. we interact with investors today, I think you know, those, those fundamentals ultimately drive the, drive the value, be it in public markets or in private markets. Do you try to ignore, do you try to ignore the stock price? Do you check in Google Finance every four seconds, uh, hit and refresh on the computer? Uh, it's not, not my style. Um, <laughs> but I, I mean, I think, look, it's, it's, as a public company CEO, you have, an, you have uh, an important part of your job is to make sure that external stakeholders understand in a transparent way what's happening at the firm. And you know, continuing to understand their perspectives is, is part of the job, but I would say is a relatively small part compared to actually the management of the company, which in some sense is the most important part of, of every day of, of work for myself and the rest of the senior management team. And you know, talking about biotech in general and the, the, the need for innovation and strong talent and minds and always trying to, you know, shaking it up and mm-hmm. bringing new talent, how do you recruit talent? And more importantly, if I was looking to get into the biotech space, but maybe I don't have a PhD or any lab experience what could I do? Or, but you took all those you know, biology classes. So, I know. So that might have been a lie. I was, like, uh, I was actually tending the – I was actually a bartender, but it's, uh, it's kind of – it's close. close. Okay, got it. Different kind of chemistry. But um, what would you – like, is there room for people that don't have high, like, high scientific experience to jump into biotech? So, so I, I guess I'd answer that question in two ways in terms of how I think about recruiting talent. So you know, one important track – and I'm both of these there, – there's parts of recruiting that are no different than any other biotech or pharma company. Finding competent people mm-hmm. to do the jobs required to develop a drug, you know, that's that goes without saying. You need people with expertise in animal studies, expertise in manufacturing, expertise in human clinical trials, supply chain management, all of that. Okay, mm-hmm. put that to one side. Yep. But but what's what's unique to our approach? I'd say there's two things that are perhaps distinctive. The first is actually recruiting people from the pharmaceutical industry itself. I happen to believe that there's a big incentive failure in the way that rewards are structured in conventional pharma, where scientists and researchers are often not rewarded in any meaningful way mm-hmm. if their projects are successful. There's no big monetary, no big bonuses or any upside? Or- yeah, I mean, just at a high level, I don't think it's the kind of alignment that you see in other areas like mm-hmm. in the tech industry, uh, in the financial industry, and in other industries that have succeeded in attracting top talent from you know the top universities, et cetera, right? So, so I don't think you see that as regularly in pharma as you do in other industries. But you, what you do see is significant threats to job security yeah. if the given risks that you do take in terms of clinical trials or, or new programs that you want to conduct don't go the way you want. So it's all a lot of downside. So it's a lot of downside, upside. not a lot of upside. And ultimately, we're in a business that requires boldness. You have to take calculated risks in order to ultimately deliver breakthrough innovations. So for the track of recruiting people from the farm industry, I'm a big believer in the alignment of incentives. And that's a big part of why Royvent is organized the way it is, that you have small groups of these drugs organized not in one command and control central company, you know, from Royvent to the lower level staff at, at detached levels of the organization, but instead organized as a family of these small entrepreneurial organizations. Axavant, Myavant, mm-hmm. Enzavant, Dermavant, a new one soon to launch, each of which is a small entrepreneurial biotech in its own right, each of which has their own management teams and, and, and employees that can have their upside, even in, even in tangible terms in terms of compensation, mm-hmm. tied to the success of their projects by, for example, getting equity in their individual companies. So that way they really participate with the owners of the business in the success of the risks that they take while at the same time knowing it's part of this larger family of organizations that you're not going to be penalized if you took a calculated rational risk to test whether a drug worked or not. That's part of what, that's part of what the scientific process is all about. And you're not going to be penalized, but 
to the contrary, rewarded. And we have an ability to do that with the flexibility of a larger organization, unlike a VC-backed biotech startup that may be tethered to its sole product to, in a, in a way, borrow from the best of both worlds. So you're kind of, of more di- you're diverse, you're very diversified. At the Royal level, we're diversified. And at the individual companies, we can still provide the kind of upside that I believe that people who deliver scientific breakthroughs deserve in ultimately, you know, getting those drugs to, to market. And how does that work? So if, if, if I'm on a, if I'm on a team and do I get a reward every time I move on to the next phase? You said incentives is the big incentive besides the pride of getting like an FDA approval. Is that kind of the windfall for me? So look, I think most people, and I don't want to overstate the, the financial part of it. I think that's just a manifestation of, of a broader culture of ownership. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's how you get big while staying small. And I think you have to stay small while getting big in order to be successful when you do get big. So think about it, I mean, for example, really simply, the people who work at Axe Event and my event, et cetera, at Ends Event, identify themselves as working at those companies. Mm-hmm. They understand it's part of the broader Royvin family and have a close cultural tie to the Royvin organization. But their equity compensation is generally from the company where they work, mm-hmm. at Axe Event, at my event, at Ends Event, et cetera, in a way that if those drugs succeed and those are calculated risks that that organization is taking – they actually participate in that upside in contrast to if they worked at a large multinational conventional conglomerate, large pharma. You know, they're many steps removed from the success or failure of the broad behemoth firm as a whole. I see, yeah. So, so that, that's, that's one specific example. You could have a win, but the other team could have a loss, and that kind of wipes everything out. This way, you've, you're kind of, you can see direct ownership and direct results from what you do to what comes out at the end exactly. of the day. Exactly. And, and, and I, don't, and I, I want to emphasize again, it's not just the, the financial part of that, but, but that is emblematic of the broader feeling of a culture of ownership and accountability for the projects that are close to you rather than feeling many steps separated from the success of the of the distant multinational you know parent company behemoth okay so, so that that's on the recruiting track from pharma I see. you know another distinctive aspect the second distinctive aspect of our recruiting philosophy is a firm belief that we as an industry have not done a good enough job of recruiting talent from other industries and I actually believe that fresh perspectives from outside of the pharmaceutical business can make a positive difference in pharma R&D and eventually in the process of launching commercial products in a very new and innovative way. We've had a lot of experience with this in the early going. I'm a big believer in, draw, in, in putting in work settings people who have made their entire careers in the pharmaceutical industry yeah, side by side with the kinds of folks who might have gone and worked in Silicon Valley or in Wall Street or may in some cases even be straight out of college. I, we were one of the few, if only, pharma companies that I'm aware of that had campus recruiting programs at Harvard and MIT this past year. We're expanding that at scale in the coming year. And to really tap into talent pools that may not in a million years have thought they were going to go work for a, for a biopharmaceutical company, but today are able to have an impact, I believe, in a more serious way and in a way that's socially desirable, by the way, in the delivery of new innovative medicines rather than you know constructing a financial product that can be marketed to a particular type of fund or, or de- developing a mobile application, all of which may be valuable things, but results in, in not enough of those people focusing on problems and advancing the state of science and medical care. I'm taking so much of your time. I appreciate it. Anything else you want to hit on? Or- you know, look, I think that you know, I don't, I, I'm pleased that you want to, you know, come here and think our business is, is interesting enough that you'd want to interview me. But ultimately, our major contributions to society will be measured in terms of the new medicines we actually deliver. And to be clear, we haven't done that yet. We've only been around for a couple of years. But I think the time that I consider our real accomplishments to be counted as, as true accomplishments will be when we deliver the first, the second, and hopefully the many more to follow – new drug candidates that ultimately are approved medicines that actually make a difference to patients. And so, you know, look, while I'm telling you about my vision of the company and, and how it got founded because, because you're asking me about it, ultimately, uh, I actually don't think we have – I don't think financing events or the – even the starting of a business operation is really what measures our ultimate result. Our ultimate result will be – measured in the impact that we have on human lives, hopefully millions of human lives, once we get a drug approved. And it's really then that I'd love to come back and revisit and have a conversation with you, because until then, this is all still just a plan at the early stages of being executed. Well, so your first drug gets approved. How do you guys celebrate? Let's uh, expand our operation and find a way to reinvest in the next one. 
Give me a give me a fun answer. Come on. No, that's. I mean, we have a we have a very serious culture here. I think uh, maybe to the point of complaint, but it's not a. Uh, I don't think you see uh, ping pong tables and and bean bags in uh, novel workstations when you when you walk around here. Well, I haven't I mean, been on the third floor yet. So that's no, right. No, no. But that, that's where the uh, that's where the hybrid human animals live. So uh, we'll, we won't we won't take you down there today. Vivek, thanks so much for uh, talking to us. It's been great. Appreciate it. Thank you. That's it for this episode of the Forbes interview. I'm Steve Bertoni. If you'd like to reach us, email us at interview at podcastone.com. Thanks for listening. Hey guys, David Smalley here, reminding you to check out Dogma Debate on the Podcast One app, iTunes, and basically everywhere else you could possibly hear a podcast. Dogma Debate is basically a way for you to peek in on conversations you've always wondered about. Say a hardcore anti-gay preacher meets an atheist who knows the Bible like the back of his hand, or a far-left social justice warrior meets a different kind of liberal who doesn't want to join in on the riots. On Dogma Debate, I talk to people who completely disagree with me, and I let them tell me why they think I'm wrong, why I should be on their team, and why they take such an extreme stance. And sometimes you'll just hear me hanging out with like-minded people and laughing during segments like Republicans Say the Darndest Things or Fact Check Yo Mama. It all happens on Dogma Debate, right here on Podcast One. It's the semi-annual sale at Mattress Firm. For a limited time, get huge savings of up to $500 on our top-rated mattresses. We have more than 15 beds with over four-star ratings on sale store-wide. Like our fan-favorite Serta Memory Foam Queen mattress, now just $397. You won't find this deal anywhere else. But hurry in, this sale ends Tuesday. Your budget stretches further. At Mattress Firm. Restrictions apply. Valid at participating locations only. For offer details, visit mattressfirm.com slash sale. At the border, I'm Ed Donahue with an AP News Minute. At the roundtable discussion today in San Antonio, Texas, President Trump heard something he said he never heard before about life along the border. Many people are dying, and the danger of living here, unless you know exactly what you're doing, is tremendous. This is Texas Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. Where are the people in Washington to stand up for these children, these women, these senior citizens? Where are they? Bring them down. Mr. President, let the Democrats come down to Brooks County. Let them come to any of these ranches. Let them see these bodies. Let them see the skeletons. We have the photographs. Attorney General William Barr says he thinks spying did occur on Donald Trump's presidential campaign, suggesting the origins of the Russia investigation may have been mishandled. Scientists released the first image ever made of a black hole, revealing a fiery ring of gravity-twisted light swirling around the edge of the abyss. One scientist said science fiction has become science fact. I'm Ed Donahue.